This morning we're going to be in Daniel chapter 10. Probably uh, two or three more sermons in Daniel, then we'll switch over to 1 Peter. But this morning we have before us yet another, just Daniel is just such an incredible book. Every chapter has something amazing in it, something that is of the Lord and something that is inspiring and encouraging and instructive to our hearts. And today we see the coexistence of the physical world and the spiritual world, physical and spiritual realities coexisting together, but the spiritual shaping the physical. And I would ask you this morning whether you believe that that is in fact true, because if you don't believe there's a spiritual world or anything spiritual happening in the world, this is going to be ridiculous to you. But this is what the scriptures present to us as reality, and that the work of the Lord in the world is what is in fact shaping the world. And we'll see that there are struggles going on behind the scenes. Paul writes to the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, that our struggles are not against flesh and blood, they're not against physical things, but against spiritual evil. And Paul calls it this present darkness that there is something spiritually evil in the world. Last week we talked about angels and then those that have rebelled against him, demons led by Satan, our great adversary, who struggles against all the things of the Lord, who is defeated and will one day be fully defeated. But our role in these things is understanding that our victory comes from the Lord. Our victory does not come from within ourselves. It does not come within our own strength or our own resolve, but it begins by our faith in Christ. It begins by us humbling ourselves before the Lord and prayerfully asking that he might go before us. Because if you have been at a place in your life where you feel completely and utterly powerless to handle what is going on before you, you have finally come to a right understanding of the situation, that you are utterly powerless to handle what is before you. And that the Lord might instruct your heart and help you to understand his grace. That he might come alongside you and lift you up. And we're going to see something of that this morning in Daniel chapter 10. And so again we have Daniel as our superlative example of faith and godliness. A man, a person, a human being just like you and I. But seeking after the Lord in a way that is highly unusual in this world. So let's look at Daniel chapter 10 this morning. If you would please stand with me to honor the Lord as we read his word. Daniel chapter 10, verses 1 through 21. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all. For the full three weeks, on the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like burl, his face was like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. 
Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man, greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. And then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humble yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is, happened, what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. And when he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips, and I opened my mouth and spoke. And I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me and said, O man, greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. So Daniel chapter 10, 11, and 12 are one section in scripture together in three different subdivisions. So the first is Daniel's encounter with this divine being. It's my understanding is Christ Jesus himself, which we'll talk about here at length. The second is a vision of things yet to come up into the time of Christ and some after him. And then the third section is about things yet to come all the way to the resurrection, the final judgment and the final resurrection. And we will get as far as time allows today because there's much here. But I'm excited to talk to you about these things. I, I, I learn more by studying to teach you than you'll ever learn from anything that I say. And it's always hard to decide what to pare down and, and bring to you this morning. But I hope this is helpful to you in this beautiful passage of Scripture. It says in the beginning, the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. So Cyrus, as we've talked about before, being the same person as Darius, the Cyrus as the chosen instrument of the Lord, one prophesied from Isaiah 43, 28, all the way into Isaiah 45. If you've never read that before, a long time before Cyrus was ever known or ever ruled by the word of the Lord, his name is mentioned as the one who will release the people from their bondage and send them back into the promised land. And this is exactly what happens. Cyrus sends the people back into Jerusalem. And yet, Daniel is mourning. We see in verse 2 that Daniel is mourning and fasting. And so what is happening here? Though it is two plus years after some of the people have been sent in the first wave back to... Please come on in, folks. There's uh, seats over here, seats down front. Please, you're welcome to come on in. Um, 
they are more, they, he is mourning. So why is he mourning if God's word has been uh, answered and the people have been sent out into, back into the promised land? This is recorded for us in Ezra chapter 1 and Ezra chapter 2. That the first wave of the people going out to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, they go, but the work is fiercely opposed by enemies. And so as they are opposed, they give up in the work, and they don't do what God has sent them out to do. Their opposition causes them to stop the building of the temple, which is recorded for us in Ezra chapter 3 and Ezra chapter 4. And one of the things that's very important to this passage is that uh, it's not just a work of man. We, we learn from this passage that there is spiritual evil opposing the work of the rebuilding of the temple. Should that surprise us at all that Satan and his demons would passionately oppose the rebuilding of the temple and the reestablishing of the people of Israel? It was a crucial time in the life of Israel. And so the Lord sends and uses his ministers, this is the lesser or the minor prophets we call of Haggai and Zechariah, are sent to encourage and spur and press the people on to come back out of this uh, stopping of the work to re-enter the work of building the temple and the temple then is eventually finished. But it is my understanding of what we have going on here, some years after the fact that Cyrus has sent the first wave of people back to Jerusalem, that Daniel has understood that the work of the rebuilding of the temple has stopped. And in that stopping, it seems that again, the work of the Lord has come to a place that he didn't understand. And it is causing him to mourn that what seemed to have begun has now stalled out and stopped. And he is going and asking and, and fasting and praying before the Lord because what he thought was going to happen did not come to pass. And that should be an encouragement to us in one way that how often in your life, it's regularly in my life, something that I think that the Lord is going to do, it just does not come to pass the way that I thought it was going to come to pass. And it causes trouble in my heart and it causes me to wonder what is God doing and why is he doing it in this way and why is the timing of the Lord not the timing that I would have. But in verses two through three, we, we hear about Daniel's fasting and what he is doing. In verses 2 and 3, it says, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat, no wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself. So it's a type of fast. There's, there's no dessert, no fancy food, no meat, no wine, and no, no self-care. It seems like a bread and water type of fast where he's, he's letting his beard grow out and he's just pouring himself out before the Lord, trying to understand what God is doing and asking for God to reveal himself and adding with that asking as much physical uh, show as he can to focus his desire and focus his seeking of the Lord that the Lord might see him humbling himself before the Lord and he might answer his prayers. And so I'd like to say a few words about fasting because it makes sense and in, in looking at Daniel and Daniel fasting before the Lord. Fasting is something that we don't often talk about in church, but something that is important to talk about in church. I believe that fasting should not be a normal part of our prayers. 
Uh, It is related to something exactly that we see here, something that is of deep struggle, deep anxiety, something that is of mourning. I believe that the normal pattern that we see in the scriptures is that our prayers should be filled with joy and with hope and with thanksgiving. And the normal pattern of our prayers should be in this way. And it's a departure from that when our prayers are, are characterized by mourning and by sorrow and by fasting. But there is a time of necessity when that makes sense with where our heart is before the Lord. That when we are entering into a time in our life of great necessity, great loss, great need, great temptation, where our hearts are not at rest, and it doesn't make sense for us to be joyful and thankful, that it's right at that type of of, of juncture to fast and to begin to withhold and to focus our hearts in humility towards the Lord because it's the natural way in which our life is moving. When we enter into times like that, some of you have been there, as I have been as well, where you start losing weight. Like you're so anxious and you're struggling so deeply with something you don't want to eat anyway. And what happens is that we're given to one direction or the other. Either we will enter into a period of intentional humility and fasting that is intentionally prayerful in turning ourselves to the Lord and asking for God to work and move and act in our life, or we will be given over to great anxiety that will consume us, and we go round and round that track of anxiety, trying to fix our situation, scheming as to what's going on, and being uh, anxious and, and fretful towards God. But the Psalms are very clear that we should not be a fretful people. Instead, we should turn our anxieties to the Lord. And in Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us that our fasting should be something that is personal, not something that is for show for an audience. And so when we reach these difficult, dark, and, and hard times in our lives, it is right and appropriate to fast to pull back from things and to humble ourselves intentionally towards the Lord and to give ourselves towards prayer and not towards anxiety. And as we fast and as we pray and we call out to God and ask for himself to reveal himself to us and make his will known to us, the Lord will always answer the prayer of the humble saint according to his will. And so there's various forms of fasting. Here in Daniel, we see him fasting from no extras. He's cutting everything down to bread and water. I think the, 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 probably the literal reality of this is a person in their 80s probably couldn't fast in any other way other than bread and water. You're weakened in a state anyway, and you need something. But he is showing to God the intentionality of his life. It's not so much about exactly what is cut out, but the fact that he is intentionally cutting things out in a state of mourning and humility before God. And so your fasting may be like this, where you cut out certain, effort, certain extras. Your fasting may be in a way to break an addiction of something that you know may be lawful but has consumed you, and you cut it out of your life for a long period of time that the Lord might restore self-control to your life. Whatever it may be, there will be times where God's Spirit leads you toward fasting. And you will say, yes, I'm, I'm going to do that. I'm going to cut that out for a time to be intentional or not. But it is bound to prayer and humility before God. It is bound to a personal striving towards God. And I want to counter this or compare this to the way that fasting uh, is, is in other religions or other practices of Christianity. And so 
we see this in the Roman Catholic Church and we see it in Islam where there is seasons of very public ritualistic fasting where at a certain time everybody's going to stop eating something and we're all not going to eat this at a certain period of time and then we're going to go back to eating the next day. And that's just what we do because that's the way that our religion lays it out. For Islam it's a month, in the Roman Catholic Church and others it's certain days. And this is ritualistic fasting. I want to help you understand that there is no ritualistic fasting in the New Testament. The New Testament does not promote fasting as a spiritual discipline in and of itself. It has a purpose to an end. And the purpose is to humble ourselves and focus our hearts on prayerfulness towards the Lord. Not just removing something for our life and that God is pleased by removing that thing for a period of time and then we bring it right back the next day. That's not the point or the purpose of fasting. If this is something that you struggle with, I encourage you to come and ask me afterwards. I'll be glad to talk to you more about it. God does not require ritual fasting for the sake of fasting itself. Fasting in the scriptures is a, is a way of focusing our heart to the Lord as we see Daniel in this time. And so what is the result of three weeks of passionate, deeply earnest pleading with God in the life of Daniel? You know, and we read past that three weeks too. You know, I, I don't know if anybody in here has ever fasted for three weeks. And we wonder, you know, we say, wow, I would love to see the things that happen in the lives of saints happen in some way or some degree in my life. And one of the things I want you to see is that these people often sought the Lord in a way that we never seek him. And that if we want to see the Lord act and work in our lives in a way that we've never seen him act or work before, it requires that we seek him in a way that we have never sought him before. And so Daniel seeks the Lord in this long, enduring, humble, prayerfully passionate way. And the Lord's way of answering him at this point in time is in verse 4. On the 24th day of the first month, it shouldn't surprise us that Daniel marked the exact day that this happened, this incredibly important moment in his life. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and I looked. And what did he see? He saw a man clothed in linen, a belt of fine gold, a body like burl. And it, let, let me point out that it says over and over for the next five descriptions, like, 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 like. Why does it say that? Because there's nothing in this world that is exactly a one-to-one -one comparison to what he is seeing. He is seeing something spiritual, something of heaven, something not of this world, and he's comparing it to the closest thing that he knows in this world. Burl is a gemstone. Depending on the, the chemical makeup of it, it can be various col colors. Sometimes we see it as aquamarine, sometimes as an emerald, sometimes as a golden color. But the body of this being is like a gemstone. Face like lightning, eyes like a flame of fire, legs like bronze, and the voice like the sound of a multitude. Many people speaking at the same time, a voice that is strong and is overpowering but is not harsh to the ears. And I want us to see this morning, as we see this comparison, I want us to turn, please keep your finger in Daniel chapter 10 and turn over to Revelation chapter 1. You cannot read this, this vision of Daniel without reading a latter vision of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 where we have the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos in prison on the Lord's day. 
And the vision given to him of the risen Lord Jesus and the comparison of the two are almost exactly the same. John, uh, Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 17. Verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the isle called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So it was a prison island. He was imprisoned there. Verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. And the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. The Lord Jesus revealing himself to John. Oh, it's just one of my favorite passages in Scripture. On the, in the, on the Lord's day, he's in the Scriptures and seeking after the Lord as he ought to be. And Jesus appears to him and he turns around and where there was a little table or the back wall of the room is now a window into heaven. And he sees the risen Jesus there in a white long robe and a golden sash, his hair white like wool, his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet like bronze, his voice like the sound of many waters, a similar comparison to a voice of a multitude. Think of the biggest waterfall that you've ever been to and trying to have a conversation next to a person at a huge waterfall. It's very difficult. You have to yell at them because the volume is so loud, and yet it's a beautiful sound. It's a sound that you could sit there and listen to all day. It's the sound of many waters. This is the voice of the Lord is like this, overpoweringly strong, and yet soothing, and a voice that we want to hear. And his face, like the full strength of the sun, Daniel describes it like lightning, one way or another, it is a blinding light, a light so strong that you cannot look straight into it. And the reaction of both of these men in facing this is that they fall down on their face like a dead person. They're extremely similar descriptions and extremely similar reactions to seeing something of Jesus Daniel names and interacts with various angels throughout his life, and that's important because as he has interacted with and named and, and in some way had interaction with heaven more than any other person, probably other than Moses in the history of the world, he never describes one of them like this. And his reaction to them is never like this. His reaction is being overwhelmed by the glory and the fear of God Almighty himself. And so I believe that what Daniel is seeing here is Christ Jesus brought prior to his incarnation. And we'll talk about that more in just a moment. But there's a few things that should be noted here. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 8 is incredibly important to our understanding of this. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 8 says this, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
we tend to focus on the today and forever part. But the yesterday part is really important because we believe in a triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three persons but one God, eternally existing, which means that Jesus Christ existed as he exists now, eternally in the past. The same glory, the same glory of Christ before the cross being revealed to us here by Daniel, and the same glory after the cross being revealed by the writing of John. It is the same glory in both ends, yesterday and forever. And so we think about the glory of Christ before the cross as the same glory of Christ after the cross. It puts Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. And sorry I'm bouncing around a little bit here this morning, but my mind just went all over the place in looking at this scripture. And this glory that Daniel is encountering here, he who is in the highest place, he who is greatly loved by God and probably the most godly person living at that time falls down on his face like a dead man before the Lord because his, his glory is so overwhelming. It is this same Jesus that humbled himself to be born as a child in a manger in the stable of donkeys. And we read about this in Philippians chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a beautiful passage. But I think we can only grasp the humility, God purposefully humbling himself for our salvation, even death upon a cross, a publicly humiliating death. And if you haven't thought about that or dwelt on that much, go back in the sermon archive and look at the sermons that deal with the, the crucifixion of Christ, where we talked about this at length. But this Jesus... For his love for you and for me and to glorify himself through the salvation of men and women and boys and girls humbled himself and came from this exalted place down to live amongst us and walk in the streets and care for us. His linen was transferred for a carpenter's apron, his golden belt for a leather belt, a body like a jewel for a body of weakness, suffering pain and temptation and tiredness. His face like lightning for a face that was spat upon by his enemies. Eyes like flame for eyes of compassion that wept tears of love over those that followed after him. A voice like the roar of many waters for a voice of a good shepherd gently calling his sheep and his people to himself. And his people hear his voice and they follow after him. And so what we have happening here is the glory of Christ and then the humility of Christ in the incarnation of Jesus, and then the cross, and the resurrection, and then the ascension of Jesus back to heaven, back to this glory yesterday, today, and forever. And the scriptures tell us that Jesus will come again. And when he comes again, he will come in this glory. 
He will come with the trumpet and the shout of the archangel of God upon the heavenly clouds, and he will come in glory. This glory will come down, and this is what the second coming of Christ will be. And this is our hope, and this is what we look backwards to and what we look forwards to. And I pray that seeing some picture of this, some bit of this, will help you in your hope for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Do you have this high view of God in these passages? The passages that that express this glorious view of God. Is this your understanding of God? Have you ever considered what it will be like to be before the Lord? What your first time of being in the full presence of the Lord will be like? I think that for many people, they are greatly mistaken because of a low view of God that they have, that they're going to somehow come and give Jesus a high five or give him a hug or, or depending on your gender or your age, you're going to go run and sit in his lap or just have some hang time with Jesus. Like, I, I need you to understand that that is a completely unbiblical view of what your first encounter with Jesus is going to be like. Your first encounter with Jesus is going to be like what we read here something of terror, something of being overwhelmed by glory and power that is so far beyond you that you don't know what to do with yourself other than fall down on your face. But for those in Christ, the reaction of Jesus will be the same that he always reacts to those that are loved by him. And that he will come and touch them with his hand and tell them that they are loved and that they ought to fear not, but that their hearts should be at peace because they are forgiven of their sins and that they are then raised up by Jesus to enter into his presence and experience something that they have never experienced before. And so this is the glory of the the power and the grace and the love and the mercy of Jesus Christ. And this is something that ought to cause us to worship or cause you to be deeply afraid. Because if you reject the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ and you harden your heart and you shake your fist and you hate God, you need to understand that that first encounter him with him will be the same. But the secondary, secondary response will not be the same. The scriptures tell us that for all those that reject Christ Jesus and his salvation, the words will be, instead of words of love and words of, of comfort, will be words such as, depart from me. I never knew you. And those are words that should shake us to our soul as to what we are doing with God and where our heart stands before him and whether we have allowed the things of this world to consume our mindset and to consume our attention to where we care nothing about the things of God. May it be a wake-up call for you. In verses 7 and 8, we learn that Daniel alone sees this vision. He's by the Tigris River, And it tells us that I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So there's something similar here of what happens with uh, Saul in Acts chapter 9, where the Lord God shines from heaven upon Saul, who will later become known as Paul, and strikes him blind in the middle of the road. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And it says there that they, the people that were around him heard the voice, but they saw no one and also fled. Something similar. The Lord is able to pinpoint who he is revealing and what he is revealing, but the people there could not 
uh, hide from the glory of God being revealed to Daniel, and they fled from him. But in verses 9 through 11, we see more particulars of what I've already alluded to in various ways of the physical reaction of Daniel being in the presence of the Lord. And we've talked about this many times, but it's worth saying again, there is a connection between our soul and our body. It is something that the Lord has created in us. And there's a reason why the posture of our body, of bowing our head or, and kneeling our knees before the Lord matter, because there's something about it that has to do with our relationship to God. And so when, Dan, when Daniel comes into the presence of the Lord, he falls down on his face and he loses physical strength. But the Lord Jesus comes and with trembling raises him to his hands and knees and then with further trembling raises him to stand. And in a few weeks in chapter 12, we're going to spend time talking about this standing part. There's something gloriously important about Daniel standing in the presence of the Lord, being raised by the Lord to stand without fear and without shame in the presence of the Lord. And so as we close our time here today, we'll pick up and continue next week. But I want to point out two things. Another instance of Daniel passionately seeking after God we see in this passage. And I want us to read a little bit from Psalm 42. Because I want you to put together Daniel's passion in seeking God and God revealing himself to Daniel. In Psalm 42, we have this, verses uh, 1 through 5. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God, My soul thirsts for you, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How would I go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Often we'll read the very first verse, my soul pants and seeks after the Lord, this idea of thirsting much for the Lord, but I think it's important to read the following verses, where this person comes to the Lord with this desire out of a low place, out of a place of sadness, out of a place of struggling and not understanding what God is doing in their life, which is the same place that Daniel was when he sought so passionately after the Lord. I know that none of us want hard things to come into our lives. None of us would choose that. But the Lord chooses it often to bring hardship into our life, to, pour, to press us to a place of humility, to press us to a place where we are shaken up out of our normal way, And we're going to either turn, as I said earlier, to anxiety and fretting, or we're going to turn to prayerfulness and fasting and seeking after the Lord in an intentional way where our heart must have a word from the Lord or we will not stop seeking after God. And it is in that place, as we thirst after the Lord and as we hope in God as our salvation, that he will make himself known to you and fill your heart, and give you what you need, and direct you in his way everlasting. Daniel was longing after God and after heavenly glory, saddened and confused by earthly realities, fasting, praying, calling from the Lord, and Jesus reveals himself to Daniel. 
May this characterize also your way of life and my way of life. The messages of Daniel are important, but the nearness of God is the great gift. So many messages are given to Daniel, many things that are recorded that help us to understand both the past and the present and the future, and those are important. But I believe that the greatest gift given to Daniel and the greatest thing that God can give to us is his own presence and his own nearness. Whatever knowledge you may come to understand about God in the future, it is the real and near presence of the Lord himself, which is the greatest and the highest good. Daniel's ability to be into the presence of the Lord was what was the greatest blessing to him. And this is what you and I long for. We long for the strong indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We long to be in heaven, to be in the presence of the Lord, that there might be real fellowship and real nearness between God and yourself. And this is what it means to have a personal relationship with God, not following after a system of religion, not knowing many things about God, but by grace, through faith, having a personal and real relationship with God. And I want to encourage you this morning, if you feel discouraged by saying, Daniel is just so far away from me. Like, I, there's no way that I could ever do this. I, I, I'm over here and Daniel's over here. How, am I, how is this a help to me to bridge this gap? I want to remind you this morning that Jesus tells us that the beginning of faith in the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Being the smallest of all seeds, it's the idea that our faith in Christ Jesus can be so tiny but if it is authentic and true, he says that this will grow up into being like a great tree. And faith which begins so, so small and like a child, continuing on year after year in faithfulness, will grow and grow and grow. Daniel enters into this experience as an 80-year-old man, not as a young person. And no matter where you are in your life, may your faith in Christ Jesus be authentic and true, no matter how small it may be. And the Lord will strengthen these things and take you from where you are to where you will be closer to him. So come, humbly as you are. May Jesus touch you and raise you up. My closing prayer this morning is going to be a little different. Than I, and usually I, just, I, I pray my own prayer, but I was struck by the prayer of a magisterial reformer related to this passage. And so this is a paraphrase of this. This is going to be our closing prayer. So please, bow your heads and let's pray together. Grant, Almighty God, since you have set before us so remarkable an example in Daniel, who you gifted in so many ways that he wrestled to even extreme old age with various and almost innumerable trials, and yet was never mentally broken down, grant us to be endowed with this same untiring fortitude. May we proceed in the course of our holy calling without the slightest despondency through whatever may happen when we see your church upon the brink of ruin and its enemies plotting desperately for its destruction, may we constantly look for that liberty which you have promised. May we strive with unbroken courage until at length we are discharged from our warfare and gathered into that blessed rest which we know to be laid up for us in heaven through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen.